especially in Japan, there are so many cultural situations where you can use only Japanese. The expressions which we use in those situations cannot be translated into other languages. So being culturally astute helps you a lot. You don't have to hold um, N1, that is the Japanese language proficiency test level one, but being able to communicate in Japanese helps tremendously. Konnichiwa, minasan. Business Success Japan no podcast de yokoso. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bukelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Also, a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So, thanks in advance. In today's episode, I have a conversation with Maya Matsuoka, Assistant Director at the Japan Association of Travel Agencies, or JADA. Maya is a multilingual professional who has worked in Japan for 19 years with extensive experience in the travel industry. She has also recently launched a great new website called Discover Deep Japan, which is a high quality resource for individuals who want to better understand the Japanese marketplace and what is needed to find success in Japan. Be sure to check out the link in the description of the episode to learn more. And of course, if you are interested in contributing to the website, do not hesitate to reach out to Maya directly. But before we get into the interview, let's go over some Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned the word teishoku. Te. Teishoku is a Japanese set meal, which you'll often encounter in Japanese restaurants. To learn more about the larger significance of this way of eating in Japanese food culture, be sure to check out the previous episode. This episode, I wanted to highlight a word that comes up briefly in the conversation. Gokuro sama desu. Go. Ku. Ro. U. Sa. Ma de su. Gokuro sama desu. Gokuro sama desu is very similar to an extremely important phrase we learned in an earlier episode. Otsukare sama desu. Essentially, you can think of them both as equivalent to you worked hard, good work, or thank you for your hard work in English. However, the difference between these two is important to remember. As it has to do a lot with how formal speech works in Japanese. While both are used frequently in a business context, Gokuro sama desu can only be used by someone in a higher position than the person that they are speaking to. So if someone is older or has a more senior position in the company, for example, Gokuro sama desu is completely acceptable. In situations where you're speaking to someone of a relatively higher position in the context, Otsukare sama desu must be used. So, if you are ever unsure which phrase to use in a situation, it's probably best to default to Otsukare sama desu and save Gokuro sama desu for times when you're speaking to a junior employee or someone you know is younger than yourself. But without any further delay, let's get into today's interview. 
my name is Maya Matsoka. I was born and raised in Bulgaria in a small border town community. There, everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew my parents. Everybody knew me, of course, and I knew everybody else. I graduated from uh, high school there. And um, after that, I moved to uh, Sofia, uh, which is the capital of Bulgaria, uh, where I studied first uh, European languages and culture. And then uh, um, I uh, changed subjects to uh, tourism. So basically administration, uh, development and management of tourism. And uh, I graduated there. And after that, uh, I came to Japan in 2001. Can you tell us a little bit more about your history with Japan? Like, why Japan? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay, that's um, a very easy question to answer. Why Japan? So, well, I married a Japanese guy. So what could be easier, you know, to, I mean, uh, a better reason to move to Japan? I met my husband in Bulgaria. Uh, He was posted uh, uh, to the Japanese embassy there. We worked together uh, on uh, several occasions. We dated there for almost three years we got married and eventually we moved to Japan in 2001. Then uh, after coming to Japan, uh, well, I didn't speak the language at that time, so we communicated in uh, either in English or in Bulgarian. And well, uh, it took me several years to learn the language here, but still um, I tried to, well, because I come from a country where everybody works, women work, uh, women don't leave their workplaces, they don't quit uh, their jobs after uh, starting a family. So one of my uh, number one things to do when I came to Japan was to look for a job. Of course, it was no easy thing uh, since I didn't speak the language. I had to learn it first. But at the same time, I was hap- I was lucky actually to find a, um, a job with an IT company, so as a back office research uh, researcher. And uh, well, I lived in Japan for th- uh, in Tokyo. Sorry, I lived in Tokyo for three years. After that, we moved to Hokkaido. We lived there uh, for three years, and then we came back to Tokyo. And we have been here for I don't know how many years already. Almost sixteen? No, more than sixteen. So time flies. It's really difficult to keep track of, of, um, of it. After I came uh, back to Tokyo, I started working uh, for uh, the Japan Association of Travel Agents, which is, well, basically it is private sector trade organization, which uh, works very closely with uh, the Japanese government. And we represent mostly companies uh, that deal in overseas uh, travel. So they send uh, Japanese uh, tourists to uh, overseas destinations. And uh, during my um, time in Tokyo, of course, uh, I, I had my daughter. So I have a daughter who is seven years old. I have kept uh, working and uh, raising the family. And uh, that's more or less it for the moment. So Perfect. Thank you for sharing. Has it been a little bit more difficult to work while raising a family in Japan than it may have been back home in Bulgaria? Well, yes and no. Because, um, well, I was really concerned before having my daughter, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to uh, continue working once I had her. But uh, fortunately, I was uh, given the opportunity to uh, use the maternity leave and also to, to go back to work um, after uh, that one year. And uh, at the same time, I went back to work and uh, I, I went back full time. 
So in a sense, uh, it was a kind of difficult until I got used to it, you know, just uh, doing the two things at the same time. And, but I think that it wouldn't, it, it wasn't so much more difficult than uh, it would have been in uh, back, back home. So just like everywhere, you need to get used to it. And of course, uh, in my workplace, well, my colleagues didn't expect me to work uh, overtime after going back. And uh, that helped a lot. So I could finish on time. Uh, I could go uh, to my daughter's skin. Uh, well, that's crashes and pick her up, go home and uh, do everything, you know, which I needed to do as a mother, spend time with her and so on. So, yes, it was a kind of difficult, but not because of the system. It was difficult just to get get used to it. <laughs> And I think it's the same for everybody, not just for me. It's probably difficult in almost any situation to raise a family while having a career. So <laughs> indeed, yes, it is. Yeah. Going back to your work, can you tell us a little bit about some of the differences you see and how Japanese companies within the same industry in Japan interact versus what Westerners might commonly expect with companies that are in, in competition with each other? Right, yes. Well, I come from a small European country and um, basically, um, well, for several years there while studying. And uh, well, I have experience uh, from, uh, from that time and I have uh, experience, you know, from wor- working in Japan. And one thing which stri- strikes me is uh, you know, is really a huge difference is that back home, and I think it's more or less the same in uh, other Western cultures, back home companies are very competitive and they really show that, uh, you know, competitiveness and they really compete against each other. So um, it's very rare to see companies, you know, uniting and working together for common cause. But here in, um, well, in Japan, well, I work for the Japan Association of Travel Agents, and we have about 1,200 members. So all of them are travel agencies uh, working here in Japan. And it's normal. I mean, they're competitors. But at the same time, when it comes to common goals, you know, which will benefit everybody in the industry, all the companies in the industry, they get together. And they work together, they discuss things, they, they try to find ways to influence, of course, to influence the government, to influence uh, the relative uh, ministries, and so on, so that, uh, you know, uh, they can um, improve their, uh, well, their business in the future. So this is one very different thing from what I have seen overseas, this uh, willingness to, to get over that competitive feeling and to overcome competition when uh, when it is for the goal or the common good. That's very interesting. So how exactly do companies work together for the good of the industry? What does that look like in Japan? Well, um, in Japan, there are quite, uh, quite a lot of associations, uh, you know, trade associations in every, every industry. And in um, the overseas travel industry specifically, this is uh, the Japan Association of Travel Agents, which you know uh, tries to help with the legislation of the industry, also you know help to 
just improve the standards and the values uh, so that they, well, the companies, the member companies can offer better services and also can work better. And it happens, uh, well, in JATA, we've got, uh, of course, we've got committees, you know, they are tasked uh, with different goals. And uh, so they, they get together every two months, they set up uh, the goals and they discuss how, you know, those goals can be achieved. They also have, you know, well, basically they create roadmaps. There are people appointed to work on every single project so that the association of the, or the projects are completed uh, successfully. And that's how we, well, also there is another thing, you know, that being um, an association which, uh, well, whose members uh, work in the field of overseas travel from Japan, we also have that uh, event. It is an yearly event we called Tourism Expo Japan. And it is a huge event. It is held every year in autumn. And it is uh, an event which is uh, meant, you know, to bring together uh, professionals from different uh, parts of the world so that the Japanese travel industry can actually uh, have talks with them and uh, work for uh, creating new products with them and, of course, find new ways to expand the business. So one of these things is that, of course, JATA, being the, one of the organizers, of course, of this uh, event, is uh, the sole organizer also of the Ministerial Roundtable, which uh, is held during the Tourism Expo Japan. So the Ministerial Roundtable is basically financed by the Japan Association of Travel Agents, not only, of course, but it is. So and once again, the budget comes from the membership fees of, uh, you know, the member companies here in Japan. So indirectly, you know, uh, those companies, uh, they expect us to, to help them you know, promote overseas travel. And this is one of the ways we do it. Well, of course, I have been involved in uh, the organization of this Ministerial Roundtable for six years now. And it has been a huge success. So it has also helped the industry move ahead. And uh, yes, we, we have a committee again there, you know, and uh, so it consists of representatives of the member companies who work together once again. Uh, representatives uh, of uh, international universities in Japan and so on. So that's how basically, yes, we move step by step, project by project. So depending on uh, what the situation requires and what should be done at the moment so that, uh, well, everybody can move ahead. Yeah, that is a very different approach, but I can see how it ends up working to everybody's benefit in the end. So we're recording this episode at the end of February, but apart from the current controversy due to the coronavirus situation, and I know it's suspended for the most part right now, but what does the go-to travel campaign show about Japanese tourists and how consumers' behaviors in Japan and expectations might be different from other countries, if at all? Yes. So that's, uh, okay, another very good question. So as you said, there was a lot of controversy. There is still a lot of controversy regarding the campaign. 
So as everybody knows, uh, so there was no travel and tourism uh, for several months last year. So basically, you know, domestic travel, inbound travel and outbound travel were brought to almost zero. Of course, it is a huge shock to the industry. So a lot of companies, since the situation continues now, and the go-to campaign has been suspended for a while. So a lot of companies are actually just uh, struggling to survive. But at the same time, the go-to campaign showed, you know, let me start first with the goals. You know, it was clear that without the movement of people, the economy was really suffering very, very hard, very, very much. Well, one of the purposes of the go-to campaign was to get people moving again and in this way have them go to the uh, local regions and also uh, and support the local economies there. And also uh, another, there was also a strategic goal there uh, to uh, manage to maintain the tourist infrastructure because uh, when uh, there are no tourists, uh, it's very difficult actually to maintain the, the infrastructure. It is also very difficult to keep uh, the human resources, you know, the human capital uh, motivated or even to keep uh, those people, you know, the employees within the industry. So uh, that was another major goal to, to keep the, the, the employees, the staff who have already been trained to, to keep them within the industry and not let them go. The campaign was successful while it was uh, it was running, and it showed that uh, there is a lot of willingness to travel here. People were really eager to move. So uh, for the six months from uh, July uh, till de December, actually there were about eighty-eight million, no eighty-three, sorry, eighty-three million overnights domestically, which is a huge number, you know of. Uh, of overnights and people were, were willing to travel people were uh, also willing to observe all the guidelines for safe travel here because uh, well it, it wasn't that difficult actually because every facility uh, had uh, well hand sanitizers installed in every facility they uh, required uh, the visitors to wear masks and also to distance physically so that uh, it, uh, the, the risk of uh, infections would be uh, minimized as much as possible and the people here complied nobody was against it so well i personally traveled with my family a couple of times and uh, yeah, everybody was actually observing all the rules and the guidelines, which was very, very encouraging. But at the same time, it was also obvious that uh, there was a clear change in uh, demographics of the travelers. Because um, before uh, the pandemic, um, it was uh, mostly the senior travelers who were everywhere all the time. So of course, because they have time, they have the means to travel. But now, uh, since, well, the COVID-19, you know, poses a higher risk to the senior people. So their numbers have been reduced and we can see more younger people traveling. So I believe that this trend will continue for a while. Or, of course, uh, the vaccines here in Japan, uh, they have started, uh, you know, uh, rolling out the vaccine, uh, vaccination programs. 
but uh, it will take some time to, uh, you know, until the situation settles down. So that uh, for a while, I believe that uh, it will be uh, really the, uh, you know, Generation Z and also the millennials who will be uh, the main driving force in uh, domestic travel first. Hopefully, you know, we'll have also the borders open soon so that uh, a lot of people will be able to, to travel overseas, but uh, we, we don't know yet. So we'll just have to wait and see. But yes. yes, I think one of the big distinctions is just the fact that Japanese travelers were so willing to follow the rules that were laid out for safe <laughs> travel. So that is that is something that made the situation in Japan a little bit different than what I saw personally in where I'm living right now. So yes, definitely. I wanted, yes, to add uh, something more. Of course, the, the travelers here, they were, and they are still willing to, to observe all the, the guidelines and, uh, you know, the uh, prescriptions for safety travel, for safe travel. But at the same time, it is also the uh, travel agencies and uh, tour operators who are very eager to offer that environment, safe environment. So we have seen, you know, there is a huge uh, change in the number or the size of the groups in group travel. So in the past, uh, there used to be groups of uh, 40, 50 people, you know, on a tour, one tour. But nowadays that number has been reduced uh, by half or even more. So that uh, when even when people are on buses, they still can sit, uh, you know, and uh, well, keep the distance between them and uh, so it is also another thing i believe that the industry all over the world has been very careful to create an environment which is considered safe by the travelers but at the same time here you know the, the attention to detail the smallest detail when it comes to safety is really well, it is overwhelming, but I am saying this in the good sense of the word, of course, so that, uh, of course, it is the travelers who are uh, careful, but it's also uh, the travel agencies uh, who are always open and very willing to uh, create that safe environment for their customers. So you alluded to this a little bit, but do you see any long-term changes that are currently happening in the Japanese travel industry? Or do you think things will pretty much go back to normal afterwards? Well, so that's also another question, a little bit difficult to answer, because we need to keep in mind, uh, well, when we talk about industry, you know, every industry has to deal with demand and also with supply. So adjust its supply to the demand. And in terms of demand, yes, I think that for a while, the people who will travel or the majority of people who travel will consist of uh, younger people, the younger generations. Although uh, the seniors here in Japan, they're really avid travelers and they love traveling. They love traveling domestically. They love traveling internationally. But yes, I guess that, uh, well, it, Especially when it comes to the senior travelers, uh, the numbers will depend on uh, how safe the destinations they want to visit are. So that, that is one thing. And this, these, you know, uh, well, the safety in those destinations will define any changes, you know, in the numbers of uh, senior travelers. This will not be probably will not be so obvious uh, with younger generations, but still it will be a major factor here. 
And then when it comes to supply, you know, and the companies which actually uh, prepare the tour products, we need to uh, make the distinction between um, the two kinds of companies uh, here in Japan. So one of them is the online travel agents. And then the other one is the legacy travel agents. And this pandemic has shown once again that, uh, you know, the uh, trends of uh, digitalization uh, in the industry are very, very strong. Of course, the pandemic uh, has uh, accelerated the trends. And so the legacy travel agencies are actually uh, in quite a difficult situation at the moment because uh, some of them are not ready for, you know, for this, not ready yet. And so for them, it will mean that they will, it will be difficult actually to, to get uh, that number of travelers they used to have before the pandemic because of, uh, you know, how bookings are made. So, uh, you know, online, if, if we have the younger generations uh, traveling uh, in the future, mostly in the future, so those generations, they are used to making their bookings online. And they're more used to uh, using online travel agencies. So um, this really poses a threat to the legacy travel agents here. And if they don't adjust, it will be quite difficult to, uh, to survive. But also, on the other hand, this also creates an opportunity for smaller travel agencies, which deal mostly in specialized tours. So I believe that for them, uh, because they, they offer very specific, very niche services, and they have, in a sense, uh, limited clientele, but that clientele is there. They have nurtured the customers, and so they are very loyal customers. So such niche travel agencies will probably, they will flourish. Their business will flourish after the, the pandemic is over. So we'll see. It's really very difficult now to say what will happen. One, one thing is sure that, uh, of course, special interest tours and independent travelers will continue to increase. But at the same time, in the short term after the pandemic, we may see a spike in the number of uh, small group tours organized by travel agencies. Because at the moment, uh, there is a lot of talk about uh, entirely managed tours. And then such entirely managed tours, they, uh, well, the term implies a, a small number of travelers on one tour where everything is arranged and all the details are, you know, decided beforehand so that Every, every single detail along the way will most probably be uh, controlled by a tour coordinator on the tour. So in the short term, until things ha uh, settle, we will see probably uh, an increase in this uh, kind of tours. And this will be maybe for a year or two. And after that, uh, things will gradually start returning back to normal. But these are just, uh, you know, uh, my observations. And things may change, of course, and we'll see, we'll see. Of course, we'll just have to wait and see. But had these legacy agencies already been taking steps to appeal a bit more to the younger generations just because the nature of the demographics in Japan? Or had they kind of been taking a little bit more time with it up until now? That's a great question, because this has been actually uh, uh, the challenge for many of them. 
for quite quite some time now, for several years. And I would say that uh, it's a little bit late now to uh, expect, you know, to regain the favor of the millennials. Because, uh, yes, uh, the millennials are very independent and uh, they use, uh, you know, online services all the time. And they're, they don't like travel agencies to tell them where to go and what to do. And then, yes, if we look at this from a different, different uh, angle, it's true. The travel agencies have uh, failed to offer products which are attractive to those, uh, those millennials. So, uh, yes, they are taking their time. Definitely, the pandemic is a great chance for such travel agencies uh, just to, uh, you know, to think of, about what is really attractive for the millennials. But at the same time, of course, I'm not saying that 100% of those travel agencies are, uh, have failed to do this, but a very big part have, actually. Yes, some of them, like, um, let's say, uh, well, among the five biggest ones, you know, uh, they have uh, divisions, they have teams working, you know, on um, tours, which, uh, well, on developing tours for younger generations, but it is still a very, very a new trend anyway. Hopefully it will, it will grow. But most of the most of the travel agencies are taking their time with this, and uh, so we'll see what happens once again. Uh, I hope that uh, they they manage to create tours uh, which attract younger generations. But at the same time, we should not forget that thirty or uh, well about thirty percent of the Japanese population is uh, senior. So this is also a huge market. And it is quite difficult to blame, you know, uh, many of the travel agencies uh, for choosing, you know, to concentrate on this huge market at the same time. Well, so let's see what happens. Right. If you can keep doing more or less the same thing you have been doing, capture 30% of the market that has the most free time and the most disposable income, that's a pretty good situation to be in. So yeah, I can't really blame them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned special interest tours. Would those kind of niche tours probably tend to go deeper into specific locations rather than moving around a lot, like maybe more traditional ones? Is that kind of what you see coming up? Yes, yes, that's that's uh, what I see. And uh, it will be, you know, if they could be hobby based or they could be destination based. So, but the trend is that, uh, well, in the past, uh, uh, Japanese overseas uh, travelers used to, to go around uh, several destinations in a week, you know, just to visit three or four countries in one week or so this uh, trend had been uh, changing even before the pandemic so uh, you know city tour city stays uh, were becoming more popular and also hobby based tours were becoming more popular and now i think that uh, in, probably you know uh, these trends will be accelerated after the pandemic and there will be uh, not only in Japan, all, all over the world, but there will be this uh, willingness to go out of the city, be closer to nature, where, you know, 
there aren't so many people and uh, well you don't have to socialize that much but you can still relax you you, you can still uh, feel you know the atmosphere of the place the culture of the place you know and still communicate with the, the local people there and get that very specific very unique experience so yes these trends they they were here even before the pandemic but i think that they will go even deeper they will become stronger so let's see what happens once again. I really, I, I say this a lot nowadays, let's see what happens because uh, things have been changing and not changing at the same time. And it's really difficult to make predictions and being sure that those predictions will actually <laughs> be realized. So, but that's how things are. We can speculate, but we don't really know a whole lot for sure right now. So we're just doing the best we can, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your insights into the market and what you think is going to happen. I think it's very interesting. But now completely shifting gears, okay. I wanted to ask you about why you think it's important for people to do business in the Japanese language specifically if they're working in Japan. Right. Yes, that's a very good question too. Thank you for asking it. So I usually say that, uh, of course, you can work in Japan, even if you don't speak the language, but the quality of your work and the quality of uh, the communication with your uh, colleagues and partners and counterparts will not be so good if you don't speak the language, at least, you know, at the conversational level. And so uh, I think it is important for several reasons. So uh, my list is not exhaustive, but uh, I'll just uh, tell you uh, which uh, the most uh, important reasons are, uh, in my opinion, of course. So the first uh, one is that nowadays in Japan, we have uh, many, many more people speaking foreign languages and of course, English among them compared to, uh, let's say 20 years ago or 10 years ago, which is a good thing. But still, the majority of the population and the majority of uh, business uh, persons here, they either don't speak a foreign language, or even if they do, they feel more comfortable communicating in Japanese. So many people still shy away from speaking a foreign language. So if you can communicate uh, with them in, uh, in Japanese, it will just make your life so much easier and their life of course their life will be so much easier which will of course facilitate you know the acceptance the mutual acceptance and also the well the, the work you know the work you do together and then um, of course another reason for speaking the language why it is important to speak is that by learning Japanese you actually learn also you learn the culture I mean, it's really a kind of a far-fetched, probably sounds like a far-fetched uh, statement, but uh, I believe that uh, the language, every language reflects the culture of that country or of, uh, of that, let's say, ethnic group or nationality. So, and especially in Japan, there are so many cultural situations where you can use only Japanese. I mean, the expressions which we use in those situations cannot be translated into other languages. And uh, knowing this, these are, you know, cultural sensitivities and then they transpire into the business culture too. And so being culturally astute helps you a lot 
really a lot to work well, to work smoothly uh, in Japan. Also, well, communicate well, because communication comes always first. So that's why I believe it is important uh, to, uh, to speak the language when you work in Japan or with Japan. Of course, once again, I would like to say that you don't have to be, you don't have to hold um, N1, that is the Japanese language proficiency test level one certificate, but being able to communicate in Japanese helps tremendously. Yeah, I think that's a very good perspective to have. It can be easy to forget how closely linked language and culture is if you are a native English speaker, just because English is spoken as a first language in so many different cultures. But it definitely is true, especially in more homogenous countries, in smaller countries, in countries where their only language is the native language. So, yes, I definitely agree with how important it is to speak the language (laughs) to understand the culture and vice versa. Indeed, yes, that's... Well, one of the most important things I remember when I when I came to Japan and I didn't speak the language and I uh, started, you know, studying it. So I had a lot of difficulty because of stress and also uh, because of, uh, well, other things, of course. But uh, so after I became able to communicate a little bit, I stopped learning it. And then uh, at some point, so my husband was like, well, if you really want to work for a Japanese company, you have to continue studying it. So because uh, it will help you. And I was like, oh, come on, you know, this is just a test. So because he was very insistent that I I had to to pass the test. And I was like, this is just a paper, you know, it is just a test. But he said, yeah, it is just a test, but it is important because it can prove, you know, that you have uh, the, well, the minimal level of uh, language proficiency. So thanks to him, I continued studying and eventually managed, you know, to get that uh, that certificate, which wasn't easy, but uh, it was quite interesting and a very, yes, <laughs> a very exciting journey too. So yes, it is important for me because I, I come from a country uh, where uh, Bulgarian is the only, uh, well, that's the, the official language. And um, I grew up uh, close to the border with two other countries, but our languages there are so close that they're like dialects. So I never actually got, you know, that feeling that, uh, you know, uh, speaking a different language actually opens the door to a different culture. It happened after I came to Japan. So because uh, everything here was so different. And as I said earlier, it's well, there are just situations in which you can use only Japanese and there are no other expressions, no expressions in any other languages. So I, what I remember once it was, yeah, we were going out somewhere and there was a person uh, working, a construction worker, you know, doing some work uh, in front of the building we were living, we, we lived in. And then uh, my husband said, Gokuro sama And... I was like, what's this? You don't know this person first. Of course, you can always say hello to a person who doesn't, uh, you don't know. But at the same time, Gokuru Samades, what does it mean? And uh, so it was a kind of, well, he gave me an explanation, you know, that it is a way to, to show appreciation to what the other person that the worker is doing, you know, so which is very good. But 
in my language, in Bulgarian, we don't have anything which can, you know, translate even remotely, showing appreciation to the other persons. Of course, we can always say, say thank you, but that's it. It's finished. So, and I think that Gukuro Samades and also Otsukare Samades, so they're uh, synonymous anyway, but so it's, uh, well, they go uh, to a little bit deeper. So it's not just thank you, it's, you know, more like uh, yeah, showing how you appreciate the other person's uh, time and work and everything. So this is just only one example, but uh, there are many like this. That's why, you know, uh, I think that it's very important to be acquainted with such things when you, when you come to Japan and especially when you work with the Japanese companies. And it's such a small thing. It seems insignificant, but it's so foundational to Japanese culture. And then once you've been in Japan for a while or you're very familiar with Japanese and you try to explain it to somebody who has no familiarity with Japan, <laughs> you can kind of just see their faces glaze over like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this, this doesn't make any sense. But yeah, the more you can yes. learn the language, the more a lot of other things fall into place in Japan. Yes. And you definitely need somebody who can explain those things to you. So, yes, because, uh, yeah, learning the language uh, opens the door into the culture. But at the same time, you need somebody, you need some more explanation about the culture too. Yes. So as a foreign worker in a Japanese company, are you aware of any other unique challenges or opportunities that come to mind when you think about people in a situation like you? Wow, okay. There is a mountain of challenges and <laughs> there is a mountain of opportunities. So, <laughs> well, I think that nowadays uh, with everybody knows that, uh, you know, uh, working full-time uh, for a Japanese company can be very challenging for everybody because uh, you are expected, you know, to be there 100% of the time you're expected to be there, I mean, during the day and also to socialize with your uh, colleagues after the end of the working hours. But it's um, even more uh, challenging for women, of course, because, uh, you know, going drinking with your colleagues feels good sometimes, let's say once or twice a week. But when it, it happens more often, it's really tiring. And especially if you have a family, it is a kind of, well, something you wouldn't like to do. So spending time with uh, your kids and, uh, you know, uh, with the family, it's, it's, it feels much more important uh, most of the time than uh, going drinking. But at the same time here, it's like uh, that Nomikai culture. It is uh, such a big part of the business culture in Japan that uh, you just cannot skip the uh, the well, nomikais, the parties there, because a lot of things, a lot of information is exchanged there. A lot of uh, things uh, happen there too. But also there is another thing which I find quite challenging. When you start working for a Japanese company, the job des description you, you have is very vague. So uh, yes, it is very vague. And uh, of course, it's very difficult, uh, you know, to get from the get-go uh, to, to understand uh, the responsibilities you have uh, for in, in that position. 
of course, there are basic responsibilities, you know, like uh, you need to do your, I mean, what your boss tells you and you need to be there available for your coworkers, for your everybody in the company. But at the same time, that vagueness of the job description, you know, uh, creates really a huge challenge because sometimes, especially if you're new in, uh, to the company, you just wonder, what am I supposed to do? And there is very little verbal explanation of, uh, you know, such things. So I think that the, the greatest challenge here is, you know, this verbal versus nonverbal communication. <laughs> and so it comes uh, down, of course, it, well, it is very obvious when you first come to a company. But here, the culture is like, it is context rich. Well, the nonverbal communication is uh, much more prevalent than the verbal communication. So, and when you start somewhere or when you join a new team, a new community or a new company, so basically you're expected to observe and learn. And that is really difficult because very few people tell you, you should do this and you should do that. You just observe what the people around you do and you follow, you do the same. So, and uh, of course, if you, if you make a mistake, then somebody comes and tells you, you know, oh, this is, you shouldn't have done this. So, which is kind of post-factum, right? So I think that back in Bulgaria, it's the other way around. When you enter a company, they tell you, you have, you, you're responsible uh, for this, 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 and this. So this is your job, do it. If you, if you want to do something more, talk with your manager and we'll see. But here there is nothing like that so this is really very difficult and it's also a lot of Japanese people talk about the difficulty you know of well just picking up the atmosphere picking up the mood in a room let's say a a meeting room so uh, this has become very I mean a phrase used very often nowadays that is kuki o yomu right so but it's it's difficult even for some Japanese people let alone for foreigners. I mean, we are so used to being told, you know, what our responsibilities are. Yes, and uh, what we what we are supposed to do, expected to do or not to do, and so. But here, oh my, it's really, really difficult. So, I mean, developing that sensibility is very difficult for foreigners, I think, in the beginning. Once you learn you know, that there are certain things which are allowed and not allowed, it becomes easier. And of course, uh, one good thing is that in every organization, there is always a person who is willing to tell you things if you ask them. Of course, if you ask them, if you don't ask, there will be very few people, you know, uh, just volunteering to, <laughs> to give you information. But if you ask, then there is always somebody who can help you with this. So, yes, this is a challenge, but I think that in in order to overcome it, so you need to just be open and never hesitate to ask. So don't worry about anything. People know that, uh, you know, you're a foreigner and uh, so you don't know things. They don't expect you to behave 100% as a Japanese person. So it helps a lot. Asking questions helps a lot. Yeah, that's great advice. <laughs> Could you please tell us about your new project, Japan Expert Insights? Oh, yes. Thank you very much for 
bringing it up. So this is uh, basically, it's yes, it's a project which I started thinking about last year in uh, October. And basically, at the moment, it has it is in the shape of a website. But uh, well, uh, it is, I'm trying to create a platform where professionals who have lived and worked in Japan or with Japan can share their knowledge about Japan as a business uh, business place or business environment. So uh, because these people, they have been successful here. They they have worked here for 10, 15, 20 and more years. And they know how Japan as a, a corporate environment works. And they know the corporate culture. They know the public affairs here. They know uh, how the business moves. So um, I have uh, asked uh, people to share their insights and they have agreed. And so uh, Japan Expert Insights is basically a place where everybody who wants to know a little bit more or more about the Japanese business environment can go there and search for information. The site is still in its very beginning and I'm developing it. Uh, It will be growing in the future, of course, as I'm still looking for experts who are willing to share their insights there. And uh, I really hope that this, I mean, the information there will help people who want to work in Japan or who want to work with uh, Japanese organizations learn and, uh, well, learn how things are done here and be op- more open-minded so that they can succeed in, uh, in their future business. Yeah, I'm personally excited to see where it goes because obviously our missions align very closely (laughs) but it will be definitely be nice as somebody who has experience trying to do research about Japanese business culture to have a definitive source instead of just blindly typing in Google having to check a few different websites to make sure they say roughly the same thing so I'm looking forward to see where Japan Expert Insights goes in the future. Well, me too, actually, because uh, it's obviously a living thing and the ecosystem changes uh, all the time. Of course, we need to ad- need to adjust to it. But there are, of course, some basic principles we, uh, which uh, stay more or less the same. So uh, let's see. I'm very excited about it and I'm committed to growing it. So uh, let's see how it how it goes. And I'm very much looking forward to collaborating with you on it. Yes. So Me yes, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just to kind of start winding things down for today, could you please share an example that you have of a communication breakdown due to differences in culture? That's a difficult question. <laughs> well, yes. Quite a few, but it's really difficult to uh, just choose one of them because it has happened quite a lot. And uh, yeah, one thing it's more like, well, probably it goes a little bit into a different direction. What happens is that, uh, well, in my work, I uh, work with uh, national tourism organizations uh, uh, of other countries. And basically those organizations, they are willing uh, to to attract the Japanese visitors. So they want to uh, promote themselves here in Japan. And um, 
what happens is that uh, when they communicate with you know with the Japanese organization, uh, well, let's say a Japanese travel agency. So those organizations they really want to promote places within the country which are on the agenda of their own government. And so, like let's say they want to promote ski resorts in Japan. But Japanese people are not really interested in going overseas for skiing. So this is, and when, well, basically, when Japanese person uh, writes in English and says, well, well, we, they never say we don't want to promote that because uh, of something, something. They usually avoid this no you know, straightforward, no. And they say, well, um, we would like to see other attractions, let's say like uh, museums, for example. So these cultural differences, but in, in Western cultures, if you don't hear a straight no, so it's not no for you, you still keep pushing for the same thing, right? <laughs> and then here, this uh, avoidance of uh, saying no actually doesn't help very much. So, and uh, quite, uh, quite a, few, a few times, you know, the communication or just, uh, well, it has been um, stalled, let's say, because uh, one side uh, expects and wants and expects something and the other side uh, is not, uh, you know, uh, let's say, not able or not willing, it's not about willingness, but not, not able actually to, uh, to express how it feels or what it wants. So yes, it happens quite often. And uh, that's why it is important, you know, that, uh, uh, well, we try to understand how business communication works uh, in different cultures. And once again, it comes to when you speak a language, you basically also become more fluent in uh, cultural uh, situations and uh, you, you become to understand cultural sensitivities and ways of saying things. So, yeah, it happens. Sometimes, you know, when a Japanese person writes in English, they still don't say no. They, they keep, you know, <laughs> just uh, communicating in the typical Japanese way. And only the words are English, but otherwise everything behind them is Japanese. So this is one example. There are many, many others, but still. Yeah, that's definitely a huge one to keep in mind that even if you're speaking in English, it may not be speaking your culture. They may still be speaking Japanese culture. Indeed, so yes. Definitely yes. something to be aware of. Yes. So if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan for business and you only had time to teach them one thing about the country or the culture before they came, what would you choose to teach them? I'm sorry, I'm going to say uh, what everybody already knows. Japan is very unique and the logic according to which uh, everything uh, here works is different from uh, the rest of the world. That's why you should leave your biases at home. Just come here open-minded and observe, ask and learn so that you can understand how unique this culture is and you can become uh, more well-versed in different cultural situations because, well, uh, basically the traditional culture in Japan is the one which uh, transpires into the business culture. 
and that's why it is important that uh, you forget uh, expectations you leave your expectations at home and come here and start uh, you know uh, to learn from zero come to japan with the beginner's mind <laughs> yes <laughs> that'll take indeed. you very far absolutely yes, yes. Mm-hmm. so did we get to cover everything that you wanted to talk about today is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrapped things up i think this is more or less all so yeah i just want to say thank you for this opportunity i'm really happy that i had the chance to talk with you and uh, share some of the things i some of my feelings and some of my thoughts here thank you so much for your time i hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of the episode to learn more about maya matsuoka and her new website discover deep japan if you would like to share your own insights into doing business in japan be sure to reach out to maya directly as well if you enjoyed today's episode please go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a review and rating if you enjoy the podcast. Or feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.